Well, if you are uh, with us for the first time, my name is Landon, and I'm the pastor here at, at Restoration. And we've been walking through the book of Colossians, but this morning we're going to start a new series called uh, Streams, the streams where God transforms us. And we're going to talk a lot about that, about surrender, about the fact that it is only God who's able to transform, to offer any form of true and real hope. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 17. We'll start in verse 1 here in just a moment. Before that, though, I, uh, I was taking some notes and kind of writing down my, my outline and thoughts for this morning on Friday. And the first thing I'm looking at here says this, the world needs help. The world needs help. And in the midst of uh, yesterday's activities and, and the shooting in El Paso, like that is incredibly evident. And then I wake up this morning and you see like what happened to El Paso, now Dayton, and you instantly can just feel brokenness and pain and hurt and turmoil and mourning. And it was like those, those four words just ring. They just ring. The world needs help, desperately needs help. And what's maybe the, the saddest, not the, well, it probably is the saddest. There's so many reasons for sorrow and hurt and pain when something of this, this sort happens. But maybe the hardest part is, as we have perspective on this is that the world will now fight, our country will now fight and argue and turn towards all kinds of things pointing the finger and looking for hope. But probably the last thing we'll do as a country is raise our arms up and surrender saying we need Jesus. And so I think the entire world would agree that the world needs help. If we have any ounce of honesty in us, we would say that we as individuals need help. And the scriptures agree. God's word, which we believe to be the truth about this world, the story that God's telling as he reveals himself, it very clearly agrees that the world needs help. Here's where there's disagreement. Our world says that, that we're going to maybe find hope in politics or, or politicians, maybe in different religion or, or spirituality or meditation or morality. If we have the right values, then we can get rid of violence and abuse and all kinds of issues that are disgusting and broken in this world. Or maybe we just look to progress. We look at the course of human history and say, we've learned a lot. We've been enlightened. Technology and science and understanding and communication eventually will take us there to peace and to hope. We look to all kinds of things. All kinds of gods and hopes are proclaimed as potential answers. And again, we'll fight about which ones may be off our hope. But at the end of the day, there is only one name, there is only one God, there is only one true hope, and it is Jesus. And so I want to just take a, take a minute to pray for, for Dayton, for El Paso, for those who are mourning loss and not understanding and don't know where to turn. And through the brutality of this, that Jesus might be known because he is the only hope. Let's take a second and pray. Jesus, you alone are good. You alone are the, the creator, the savior, and the sustainer. God, and in this time that our, our country mourns the, the loss of life, 
I pray that you would offer your spirit as the comforter, the counselor. Reveal yourself in this moment. Provide healing and comfort when it feels like there can't be any. God, move. Be known. Reveal yourself. God, as we look for answers and fight and quarrel and question, and there will be so much disunity, God, I pray that your spirit would move in our country, that you would be known because there's hope in you alone. Be with us. Lord, have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to bring up this definition of transformation. We say streams where God transforms. This is how transformation is defined. It's a verb to make a thorough or dramatic change in the form, appearance, or character of something, of the world, of ourselves, of a country, of policies. Transformation is needed. We all can agree on that. There's nobody I've met ever that would disagree with that statement. Again, the scriptures agree, but where the scriptures disagree with our culture is on where transformation can come from. John 14, 6, in this, this passage, Jesus puts it this way. He says, he, told, he tells them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one experiences peace and shalom and wholeness. Life as it was meant to be except through me. And in uh, Philippians, Paul puts it this way, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, speaking of Jesus. For this reason, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What, what Paul is saying is that there is a day, in fact, that is coming when Jesus will reign as king in this world. And our hope in the midst of chaos and disorder and brokenness is only in the name of Jesus. The scriptures are clear. The world needs help, but only God can actually transform. From starvation and hunger and things not being the way they're meant to be to celebrations together, from abuse to safety, from anxiety to peace, hatred to love, brokenness to beautiful, only Jesus transforms. We have Certain phrases, mantras, if you will, that we speak frequently at Restoration Church. One is on this wall. It says, broken stories becoming beautiful. And so that's actually just a part of the phrase. Really, it's we as the church, a people who and not a place where, are called to join God. This is key. Join God in his mission of restoring broken stories to beautiful. Our God is restoring broken stories to beautiful. This book tells of his plan and it's going to happen. We are called to join him as he transforms, redeems, and restores. We, we often talk about becoming human the way we were made to be. As husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, children, parents, employers, employees, lawyers, accountants, teachers, hairstylists, chefs, consultants, everything in life we're we're called to be human, to approach life in the way we are created to be. So we have a creator, and we're supposed to seek his intent. But because of sin, he is the only one that can transform us into his image, which he said is good. He made you, and he said it is good because we are made in the image of God. We talk about this idea of being a signpost, 
right? That the world should look at our lives, the way we, we spend our resources, the way we, we speak and act, and they should see a sign that says Jesus coming soon, and that should actually be really good news because the world needs Jesus to reign as king. That is our only hope. We talk about carrying the name of the character of God, that he is faithful, that he is just. He will not let injustices reign. He will put them to death one day, that he is full of peace, abounding in love and forgiving. He's merciful. We're supposed to carry his name. But that's only possible when he transforms. Romans 12, 1 through 2 puts it this way. Therefore, Paul says, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. There's some key language here. Notice it says, be transformed, not transform yourself. Be transformed. So who is being transformed? Us. And who is doing the transforming? God. That is key. But it doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. We look at the beginning. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge, that's a strong word, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. God says, And through Paul, there is clearly a role that we are to play in this story. We present ourselves to God and we say, God, you are the only one who can transform, so here I am. When Paul uses this word bodies, it's representative of something holistic. All of who we are physically, all of who we are emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, relationally. Present all of who you are in all of life before God and say, God, I am an instrument in your hand transform and work because our hope is only in you. That's the premise of the series, that it's God that transforms. And so we're going to be asking the question, where does he transform and what kind of practices and what timing and what spaces and what is the role that we have to play? We're going to spend uh, the majority of our time in Exodus 17 that I said. There's examples throughout both the Old and New Testament where we see where God transforms, what his role and what ours is. Um, But I wanted to go to the Old Testament because we do that maybe less. And I think it's helpful to see that our God is consistent throughout. And there's some pretty pretty cool imagery in this book, in this letter that God gives us. Exodus chapter 17. Let Let me set the stage for you. God's people, descendants of Abraham, have grown from one man and woman, having one son, to an entire nation. They were in Egypt where God had provided for them, but they've grown so numerous that the Egyptians were afraid that they would take control. And so they actually enslave God's people, this family that has become a nation, and God's people cry out. And when God's people cry out, God listens. And so he saves them from slavery in Egypt. He performs all kinds of miracles. Pharaoh says, go ahead and go. He changes his mind. He chases them, but God opens the Red Sea. They walk through. They're safe. They start journeying through the desert, and it's a desert. And there's moments where they're terrified and scared. They actually multiple times, and we'll read this, say, why did you take us from Egypt? Like, it would be way better to be slaves where we were just crying out for you. Why did you do this to us? They're tired. They're exhausted. They've been on this journey, and it feels like they've been walking forever. It's dirty. It's dusty. You know that feeling where your legs just just feel like jello? You just want to lay down. They ache, and they've not had water for who knows how long. They're honestly wondering if they're going to survive. They're saying, God, what are you doing? 
And, and so they do what we often do. They start yelling. They start pointing the finger. And who do they point the finger at? They point the finger at Moses, their leader. He's just done all of this through God for them. But they start yelling at Moses. And here's what we, what we read. The entire Israelite community, Exodus 17, verse 1, left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them, why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord. Notice he doesn't just like have a conversation with God. He's not just like, hey, God. He cries out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. He's writing this after the fact, okay? Moses is writing this after this has taken place. He's reflecting on the fact that they were ready to kill him. They are yelling and screaming at him. And so really in a plea for his life, Moses goes before God and he cries out. And listen to the word he says. What am I to do with these people? He doesn't say my people. He goes, I'm not one of them. He distances himself. He says, what am I to do with these people? The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Notice he tells Moses where he will be and Moses listens. He says, here's where I'm going to be. Find me there. Oftentimes, I think we approach our relationship with God as if we're playing some form of spiritual hide and seek. And God's really hard to find. And so we don't know where to look. And we go from this thing to that or this Bible study or this new practice. But God's pretty clear in the scriptures where we can find him, where he will transform. In this case, he says, here's where I will be. Go on ahead of the people, take some of the elders, take your staff with you. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. There's no water. That's why they're grumbling. They expected to find a lake. And instead, at the end of this exhausting journey, it's just dry dust and dirt. Like they had the anticipation, just look around the corner and there it will be, we'll dive in, it'll be refreshing, it's going to be okay. And after all this expectation and anticipation, it's just dust. Maybe you can even see where the color of the dirt and the rock and the clay is different where there used to be water. You know how it does that? But there's no water left. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this. In the sight of the elders of Israel, he named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They're thirsty, they're grumbling, they're crying out and Moses strikes the rock with his staff and water is provided. So in this case, Moses had a role to play, right? Moses went to God and said, what do you want? Moses strikes the rock because God commanded, but who transforms the rock to water. Only God. And so there's this beautiful mystery where we have a role to play as we listen to God and recognize him as God and as we follow him and present our bodies as a living sacrifice in the midst of chaos. This was a chaotic moment for Moses. Yet God transforms. One verse later, 
we continue in this story. It's important to keep in mind, too, as we read this book in the Old Testament, in Exodus, the second book of the Bible. It's recorded for history, partially, but it's also recorded to reveal to us who God is and the role we're to play. We pick up in verse 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. The Amalekites are really distant cousins of the Israelites. They're descendants of Esau, whereas the Israelites are descendants of Jacob. So they're cousins. They actually would have known the promise of this land that Israel was about to enter, and it wasn't going to take from them. They would have known that to Abraham it was promised they would be a blessing to all nations, but they ignore God. They come up behind the Israelites, we read later, and they murder in cold blood the weakest, those who had fallen behind and were the most exhausted and weren't protected. And the wrath of God is kindled in this moment. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand, this symbol of God's power. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the hill. Okay, let's pause for a second. Moses, the leader, goes up to a hill. He has Aaron and then Hur, who's his likely brother-in-law, on this hill with him. Joshua, the leader of the, the army for Israel, is down in the midst fighting against the Amalekites. Amalekites, excuse me. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands drew or grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and her supported his hands on one side and one, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. Here's the image. We did this earlier. It's his arms held high. Can Moses fight in this position? No. He's defenseless. He's surrendering. He's acknowledging that God alone is God. And he, as the leader of this nation, where all of these miracles have just been performed, is not. He's saying, God, our only hope in this moment is you. And so our arms are held high in surrender. We're crying out to you to be our savior once again. Because he just saw the rock. It wasn't him or his staff from which this water poured out a little bit before. It was God's transforming power as God used Moses as an instrument in God's hands. Now in this story, there's a lot of different people. Joshua was really the leader of the army. There were men that were literally fighting for their lives. Moses is actually standing there. And there's this, this beautiful image that God gives us because I think we can relate Moses is standing there, and at some point, maybe he's told this or he realizes, when his hands go down, his men die, and there's no hope for this nation. But when his hands remain up, they win the battle. And you think it would be simple, right? All you have to do is raise your hands, and you will win this battle. But God gives us this picture that actually sounds hopeless, but it's really filled with hope. Moses can't even do that. He can't even save the lives of his people as a leader by just keeping his hands raised high. They grow weary. And so God reminds us, you are not God. I am. But I am always with you and I am for you and you are loved and you are never alone. 
And so there's this image that we do not need to place our hope in ourselves or in any man or leader or concept, but rather in God as we acknowledge and surrender to him to transform. Moses really stood there with his hands up. He really needed Aaron to hold his hands up on one side and her on the other. And Joshua led the army and probably well. But there's no question that in the midst of this battle that is recorded for us, not just to say there was a battle, but to say that Yahweh God is God and that he alone transforms. It was only God who was in control this whole time. Moses had a real role. Aaron did. Her did. Joshua did. The army did. But God was sovereign and leading in this moment. You start to see a picture. Now we're going to turn to Numbers chapter 20. Just a couple books of the Bible over. Numbers chapter 20. Now the story that I'm about to read you is going to sound incredibly familiar. You're going to actually think it's the same for a moment. That's how familiar it is. That's how, how, how much it parallels. But this is different. This is later. They've experienced victories together. They followed God and watched him work. Moses has been an unbelievable leader. And then he comes to this moment and probably has his greatest failure. We read in Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. The entire Israelite community entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and they settled in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. It's been some time. There was no water for the community. So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. We've heard something like this before. The people quarreled with Moses. We've heard this too. And said, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. They've experienced this before. They've experienced God's power and faithfulness and his love. But they, like us, have forgotten. They doubt. They question. And so much so that they go, it would have been better if we were still slaves where we first cried out to God. Then Moses and Aaron, verse 6, went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell down with their faces to the ground, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, take the staff and assemble the community. Sounds familiar. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch, and it will yield its water. Let's reread that because this is different than the first time. The first time God tells Moses to strike the rock. This time you are to speak to the rock while they watch, and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock because it is who that provides God. So it all sounds good so far. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock and Moses said to them, here's where it all goes wrong. Listen to the details. Listen, you rebels. Must we bring... Must we bring, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Who's the main character now? It's not God anymore. It's Moses. Must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock, not once but twice with his staff. 
There's a display of power going on in this moment. He doesn't just strike it once. He strikes it twice to say, in essence, look at me and what I am going to do for you while you grumble. How quickly the story changes in this moment. And it's really easy to say, Moses, what are you thinking? But how quickly the story changes for us when God has proven faithful. And then we go, watch me strike the rock twice because I think I can do this now. Here's what's really fascinating. He strikes the rock twice. He clearly disobeys God. And a great amount of water, I love this word, gushed out. A great amount of water gushed out. It doesn't just tell us like there was some water. It says it was extravagant. A great amount of water gushed out. This is clearly against God's intent. This is not what God wanted. Yet God allows a great amount of water to gush out. He's about to make a point. The community and their livestock drank. They were satisfied. They found hope in this moment. There was a glimmer. But that's not the end of the story. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to show my holiness and the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and he showed his holiness to them. So God has promised this land. Moses has led them to this point. And then God tells Moses, you're not going to be the one to lead them in. You don't get to go. Eventually, they'll get close and they'll say, climb up on this mountaintop. You can see it, but you can't enter. Why do you think God did this? To punish Moses? Partially. To teach him partially. Yeah, I think so. That's clear. But I think there's something even much more deeply rooted. I think it's actually for the sake of the people that God didn't let Moses in. Because what what happened in this moment is Moses said, look at me because I can provide for you. And see, in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our lives, there are all kinds of voices and things and concepts and philosophies and progress that say, look at me because I can provide. And do you know what we do? We go, yeah, I think you probably can. And we start walking that way. And that way is walking away from the God named Jesus, who is the only one who can actually transform, who is the only one in whom hope can actually be found. I think God looks at Moses and says, you've now tempted this people. You've demonstrated your power. You struck the rock twice, and from this point forward, they're going to look to you instead of God to transform, and that's too dangerous. And ironically, for about a little further, this much of the Bible after this, they're going to struggle looking to man to transform instead of looking to the only one who actually can. Throughout these stories, Moses clearly had a role to play. The people of Israel clearly had a role to play. There's this beautiful intersection of the relationship of God's sovereignty and control, but giving us choice and free will and and moments to act. He wants us to be instrument in his hands. And we are. We talked about last week being the conduit of grace. God does this all the time through you, the church. But the biggest obstacle to being the conduit of grace, to God's transforming is when we get in the way 
and try to transform ourselves. Moses had a role to play, but he tempted the people. He, he tried to lead them astray. Maybe Satan gets involved in this and says, actually, I'm going to paint a picture of a man transforming and not God transforming. And that's the most dangerous thing of all. The, the rest of this series, we're going to build on this foundation, that it is God alone who transforms, yet... He has a role for us to play. If I go back to Romans 12, 1 through 2, it says, Be transformed. It's God who's going to transform. But present yourselves. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And by the renewing of your mind, God will do the transforming. And so that's why this series is called Streams. Throughout the, the scriptures, we see, you can call them practices, rhythms, ways of life, actions, spaces, areas of life, we're going to call them streams, where God consistently, from book cover to book cover, demonstrates he transforms in these areas. When we engage in this lifestyle and follow him, he works and he moves. It isn't this crazy game of spiritual hide and seek where God can't be found. He says, go here, do this, follow me. And so the rest of the series, we're going to talk about six streams, generosity, God transforms in the midst of generosity. Hospitality, God transforms in hospitality. Sabbath, God transforms in Sabbath. Celebration communicates value and God transforms there. Collaboration with the city. Even when God's people are taken away from their home into the lands of their enemies, God says collaborate there. Seek their best interest. Repentance, God transforms in the midst of of repentance. Streams are a body of water, right, by definition, that have movement. This is why I like the language of a stream. Because it's our body to or it's our responsibility to simply offer our bodies, hands held high. I'm defenseless. I surrender. God, you are God. But I'm going to dive into the waters where you are already moving. Our job is to enter the stream. And then the stream moves to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then God says, I'll take it from here and use you because I'm God and you're not, but you are deeply loved and you've been made well. It is good. So for the rest of this series, we're going to dive deeper into what it looks like to enter these waters, these streams where God transforms. I, I want to close our time this morning with Philippians 2, 5 through 18. In this passage, and we read part of it earlier, it, it expresses perfectly our role, but that it's only Jesus who we can place our hope in. Paul says this, it's beautiful. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is the hope we have. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, 
My dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That means seek God for, here's, this is key, it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. We jump into the streams where God helps us become human the way we were made to be where he's going to transform and restore broken stories to beautiful, where he allows us to carry his name and faithfulness and character and love, where he enables us to be a signpost saying Jesus is really going to reign as king one day, and that is really good news. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose, do everything without, without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless and a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. In the midst of darkness and chaos and brokenness, we are to be a glimpse of light, a signpost of what is to come, a contrast that says there is actually hope but only in the name of Jesus. By the way we live, by the way we act, by the way we speak and handle ourselves, we should say Jesus is coming soon. And through the rest of the series, we're going to see how God says, invites us, calls us into these streams and says, I will transform and work there. Hold firmly to the message of life. Paul says, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Your phone probably has a, a, do, a do not disturb setting. And with that setting, you basically don't get aware, right? Notifications of phone calls or texts or emails are the millions of ways that people want to get a hold of you, whether directly or through social media or whatever it is, you're not disturbed. You literally press a button that says do not disturb. I was thinking this morning and throughout this week of how I think we actually go through a lot of our lives often, if we're honest, with like a spiritual do not disturb button. And we say, you know what, God, when I get to this thing that sometimes we call church, or maybe this certain time of day when I call it my God time, or if I actually happen to think about it, I'll, I'll shut off my little do not disturb button and I'll let you speak into my life. But really what we're to do is the opposite. That's never supposed to be on. And in all of life, in our relationships, our vocations, and the, the places where we shop for groceries and our banks and everything that we do, whatever you do, Colossians says, and everything, do it all in the name of Jesus. We're supposed to be receiving, hearing, gaining input, having awareness of where God is actively working because he is. But so often we walk through life busy, searching, anxious, looking for hope in other places that we don't see that God is saying, all you have to do is raise your hands up, surrender, and I'm right there because the only hope for transformation is in the name of Jesus. The rest of the series will talk about specific streams, practices, ways, areas where God will transform. But for this week, can we just simply pray as a church that God would transform the brokenness in this world to beautiful, that God would transform us to be human the way we were made to be in all areas of life, that God would give us the desire and the will 
to be who he's called us to be, instruments in his hands, that we'd rely fully with arms held high and surrender on him to transform because that's what we need and that's what the world needs. Let's pray. Jesus, your name alone brings hope. Your name alone is good. Your story, your faithfulness, your character. God, give us power to grasp it. As we talked about last week, may your love overflow in us and spread to one another as this church and to the world around us. God, our world desperately needs you. We desperately need you. We ask that you transform, that you be at work because our only hope is in you. May you reveal yourself to us and to the world around us and may you use us for the world to see that you are coming again and there's hope in that day when you reign and it'll all be restored to your perfect, good, peaceful, loving, everlasting intent. We look to you, Jesus. Amen. If you're new with us, we uh, continue worshiping every week by responding and we do so in three ways. The first is through communion. And as we, we take the bread and we dip it into the cup and remember that Jesus rose again, remember that he is transforming, that death cannot hold him down, nothing can hold him down, but he is victorious and he will continue to be. And one day ultimately we will be and we look forward to that. So whether you're um, by yourself today or with your family or maybe your community during this next song, feel free to stand up. There's one station here and three in the back. And remember that it's God alone who transforms, but he indeed will. We also respond by reflection. So take time to just reflect on the, the burdens of this life, the brokenness and the hurt, and to cry out because he hears and he will transform. And we look forward to his return one day. And then lastly, if you call Restoration uh, Church home or, or want to give, you can give in the two boxes at the back of the room or there's instructions on how to give online if you'd like to continue your worship through your generosity. Let's continue to worship now together.